In this lecture, we're going to go over some of the common sources of infection and how you might go about treating those. So there are many families of microorganisms that can cause infection. The three that we're gonna be most concerned about for this class include bacteria, viruses, and fungi. But worldwide, there are actually a lot of really common infections that are caused by protozoans and helminths. So protozoans are things that are um, usually a more complex organism compared to bacteria and viruses that are considered a parasite along with different types of helminths which are types of worms. Now prions are another one that can cause an infection and they're actually acellular or non-living much like viruses meaning that that they exist in the world but can't replicate without getting into some sort of human host. But Prions are not something I'm going to address in this class, and I'm only briefly going to go over protozoans and helminths because most of what you're going to come into contact with in future practice would be bacteria, viruses, and fungi. So let's start about let's start talking about sources of infection. Now there are some terms that go along with this, and one of those is reservoirs. Now we might consider the source of an infection to be a person, or it could literally be a place or an object. Now, when it's a person, it could be somebody who's obviously actively infected. In other words, they're in the acute stage and they appear and act ill, as opposed to somebody who's asymptomatic or has a subclinical infection. And a subclinical infection is when it's kind of just below the surface. It hasn't really shown any signs in the individual yet, but if they were tested with, with some sort of laboratory test, it would come up positive. Now this has become more common terminology, particularly as we've had this pandemic, because we're aware of the possibility of people passing infection, even though they are not showing symptoms. Now there's also the case where someone is considered a carrier. Now a carrier is somebody who never develops infection, but they sort of harbor the organism, perhaps even all their life. And that is quite often used more for bacterial infections. For example, some people have have a streptococcus organism that colonizes their normal flora and they don't get infected with strep throat for example but they can pass the bacteria to others or in the case that I first described in our very first lecture the case of Mary Mallon or typhoid Mary in the early 1900s who was herself colonized with this bacteria but did not herself become sick. Now it could also be possible that you get an infection because you drink water or are somehow exposed to contaminated food or an animal or contaminated equipment, such as is the case with maybe surgical instruments or dental instruments, and any of these could be possible ways that you come in contact and are exposed to an organism. But then there's some other words we might use in addition to the source of infection, and that's the mode of transmission. So even though we might know where it's normally originated, we can even have some other vocabulary that describes how it might pass from person to person or in the environment to the person. Now, direct routes of transmission include direct touching of blood, body fluid, tissues, or sexual contact with someone, as opposed to indirect transmission could be through some other inanimate object. So when a fomite is the indirect route of administration of transmission, that would be some sort of inanimate object like touching a doorknob, touching a countertop, touching an elevator button, um, you know, maybe a computer um, keyboard, and then you inoculate yourself by touching your mouth or nose. And so those 
would be indirect contact where you're not actually with the person or touching the person, but they've touched something and then you then touch it and inoculate yourself. As opposed to foodborne, this might be how food poisoning um, occurs or waterborne. Let's say I'll talk about um, certain types of parasitic infections a little bit later on that can occur because you drink contaminated water. Or it could be that you're not touching anything, but you are breathing air that contains the infectious organism. So this is where droplet transmission comes into play. And again, that's something that's come up more recently with the pandemic. Now, droplet transmission could be either large or small infectious droplets. And I apologize, this image is a little bit blurry. But what happens here is someone sneezes or coughs and then contained in those microscopic droplets are the infectious particles. And depending on how far those travel, that would be droplet transmission. But usually they're too heavy and they fall to the ground within a certain space. And so this is kind of what's informed the idea of social distancing, right, with the pandemic. That if you can stay at least six feet away from somebody, then because we know the coronavirus is in some of these larger droplets, they ideally would not be able to be in the air long enough and far enough for you to then inhale them. Now that's compared to an aerosol transmission. And that's when the droplets are small enough that they can actually travel a long distance and then you can inhale them um, and be a lot farther away. And so um, this is a little bit different in terms of how you might mitigate the spread of infection. Droplet transmission and social distancing is actually going to work pretty well when you have things that are in these larger infectious droplets. Now vector-borne transmission usually has some sort of animal or insect in between you and the infection. Sorry, this is not writing very well. Animal or insect. And some of these you're pretty well aware of, like Lyme disease and being bitten by a tick. Um, mosquitoes leading to malaria, raccoons or bats, things that might transmit rabies, for example. So these are all possibilities. Now, it's also possible that the environment that you're in is going to influence the transmission. So this is a term that you definitely want to be aware of, particularly going into future practice. Nosocomial infection is when somebody acquires an infection because they go to some sort of facility. It could be a hospital, a clinic, a nursing home. And the issue with a nosocomial infection is that there are often more resistant organisms living in that environment. And you think about it, that makes sense. Those environments are cleaned more often. So what does grow in that environment quite likely is a stronger, more virulent organism. And so it may be more resistant to antibiotics. And so this would be, for example, that somebody goes into the hospital for a heart surgery, and while they are there, they acquire a nosocomial pneumonia. And so then, then if they weren't in the hospital for that surgery, they would be unlikely to have acquired that pneumonia. Now, if those organisms are drug resistant, they're going to require a different type of antibiotic or a stronger antibiotic, and that's why we are trying to really be careful and have a smart use of antibiotics so that we can avoid further organisms becoming resistant. Some of them you may have heard of before are MRSA or methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, vancomycin-resistant Enterococcus, or uh, Clostridium difficile, which can um, also be the result of what's called a super infection, which I'll just talk, uh, I'll talk about in just a minute. 
So how do we stop transmission, whether it be of the pandemic um, organism of COVID-19 or because of a nosocomial infection? In any case, some things that you want to be aware of, and this is another term you should commit to memory as well. Universal or standard precautions is sort of the philosophy or assumption that everyone you encounter could be infectious. And, you know, this had a different meaning before the pandemic. Right now, we are kind of making that assumption um, in our lives as we come into contact with people that we can't quite know who might be infectious and who might not be. Um, Whereas the use of this term previously in the healthcare field was what informed your use of personal protective equipment. And again, that's another term that maybe the public wasn't even that aware of before. So personal protective equipment might mean that when you, if you are drawing blood on a patient, you're going to wear gloves. You're going to wear a mask if you are going into an isolation ward. Um, Nowadays, we're wearing masks um, to potentially prevent asymptomatic spread among individuals in the population. We're washing hands, covering cough and sneeze. So some of these basic hygiene practices are what can potentially stop that spread of disease. Things like hand washing, isolation, um, making sure that you are wearing a mask if you are going into an area where somebody could be susceptible, particularly if they are immunosuppressed. Um, social distancing in the case of the pandemic here. Um, But it really depends on what that organism is that we're trying to prevent the spread. And knowing a little bit about that organism is what's going to inform what you would do next. So let's go into a little bit more detail on the types of microorganisms, because then some of this approach to treatment will make more sense. Let's start by talking about bacteria. And hopefully this is a little bit of review, perhaps from previous biology courses. Bacteria are a unicellular organism that multiplies by binary fission. So it literally just makes a copy of itself. And it may grow in the presence of oxygen or it may do best with a lack of oxygen. And how we approach diagnosing and treating diseases that are caused by bacteria depends on being able to identify it. So one of the things that we can do is look at its shape. If we can take a sample and isolate it and stain it, look at it under a microscope, we may be able to see that they're spherical, that they are rods or spirals, and we can even look at how they sort of group together. Do they make pairs? Do they make chains? Do they make clusters? Um, Do they have a flagellum, a little tail. And so all of these together, along with some of their basic structure, like how their cell wall is made, we could then further break things down and identify or diagnose that organism. So we do something called gram staining. Now, bacteria have a cell wall. That's something that our cells don't have. This cell wall is partly what allows them to live outside of the bo- of the human body. They can live in the environment, on surfaces, on other organic material in the environment. They don't need our cells to multiply. But that component, one of the components of their cell wall is partly what allows us to identify them. We can do a gram stain And that gram stain will help us, along with the shape of those bacterial cells, to identify them. So here are some gram-positive rods, for example. These are gram-negative rods. We've got some gram-positive cocci here. And so all of those will help us to break down the possible diagnosis a little bit better. 
Bacteria also have a cell membrane, and this will come back into play as we get into the types of drugs that are used to treat um, various bacterial infections. But what's interesting about bacteria compared to our cells is the cytoplasm does not contain a nucleus. So their genetic material is just sort of free-floating in there. But we can attack portions of their genetic material in order to treat a bacterial infection. Something that's unique to bacteria but can also be an issue in terms of treatment is a plasmid. And this is a really interesting structure. It is something that allows bacteria, and I apologize, the screen is acting up a little bit. It allows for trading of genetic material. So let's say one type of organism has learned how to become resistant to penicillin. It can package up that information into a plasmid and push the plasmid outside of itself and then a nearby bacteria takes it in and assimilates that genetic material into its own code and now has quote unquote learned how to be resistant to that same bacteria. We can also use this to our advantage. For example, we can introduce genetic material into bacteria and teach them to do things for us, like making insulin, which is a really interesting, that's um, called recombinant DNA technology, which is actually something that we can use this to our advantage. Now, what about some of the other bacterial components? Now, not all bacteria have all of these things on this list, but when these are present, it's possible that these components may increase the ability of that organism to cause infection. A capsule is sort of a slime layer. And when this slime layer is present, it allows the organism to evade phagocytosis. And we learned a little bit about how that's one of your primary first line of defense mechanisms in the immune system, to engulf the bacteria, isolate it, and get rid of it. Some bacteria have pili, which are little sort of finger-like structures that are on the outside surface of the bacteria, and they help with attachment of that bacteria to tissues. Some bacteria have a little tail or a flagellum, and this is what allows them to be mobile or modal. It allows them to sort of move around in their environment or in the tissue. Some bacteria can make toxins, and there are a couple different types. Exotoxins are usually found in gram-positive bacteria. And gram-positive bacteria, such as tetanus, then, can cause some issues when they have disease. So, for, for example, the exotoxin that tetanus produces is a neurotoxin. And so that is what then leads to some of the deadly components of that disease. Endotoxins, on the, on the other hand, are often components of gram-negative organisms. I apologize, the screen is making it look like I'm writing really poorly. And these are often released after death. And some of these are also sometimes called enterotoxins because many of your gram-negative organisms that produce these cause disease in the intestinal tract. And so these are ones that we'll come back to when we start talking um, about some of the GI tract diseases. Certain enzymes are made by bacteria that may help them to break down tissue. For example, the organism that causes strep throat 
has the ability to break down blood vessels, or I'm sorry, um, blood cells. So what you see here in this picture actually can help us to diagnose strep throat. So the organism that causes strep will then be able to break down the cells that are present in this culture media. This culture media contains blood cells. And so we'll know if there's a white area around each bacterial colony because we'll know then that it produces that particular enzyme. Spores are sometimes made by bacteria that can help them to survive harsh conditions. And you're again familiar with some of these. Tetanus does this. That's why if you injure yourself with um, a, a dirty nail or something that cuts and gets deep into your skin, it can then find a nice, warm, humid um, environment in your body and then begin to grow, whereas it was inactive in the soil. Um, botulism it also occurs. So if you were to eat contaminated food that was perhaps um, preserved inadequately, you can have organisms that create spores in that environment. And then when they get into your body, they cause botulism. So what about some special bacteria? Now, not everybody reads the textbook as far as bacteria go. There are some special cases of bacteria that just act a little bit differently. They don't quite fit that definition of a traditional type of bacteria. And some of these you may have heard of before as well. So chlamydia or chlamydophila are some types of bacteria that actually lack a cell wall. Remember I said that that's one of the distinguishing features of bacteria? Well, this one's a little bit different. In fact, it's been called a primitive type of bacteria. This one can't multiply out, um, outside of a cell. It has to be inside of your cell, just like rickettsia. They are what are called obligate intracellular replicators. They can only multiply once they get inside of your cell. And um, you've heard of some of these before. Chlamydophila or chlamydia trachomatis, for example, causes an STD, sexually transmitted disease. Um, rickettsia is actually a family of organisms, and one of the things that it can cause is Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, which is a tick-borne disease in the Rocky Mountain area. And mycoplasma is probably something we've all had and maybe weren't even aware of it. It is one of the most common causes of upper respiratory infections, um, but it is one of those that we're usually able to fight off. Um, it might seem like a cold, and so we just kind of work our way through it. This is another one that... Um, it actually can live outside of the cell, but it's a really small sort of primitive organism as well. So in some cases, the organisms don't cause disease. In fact, they live on and inside of us and it's considered normal. These are called commensal organisms or resident or normal flora. And another term you've been hearing probably a lot in either news or research is this idea of the microbiome. And we are learning more and more about this all the time. These are organisms that are symbiotic with us. In fact, they exist to help us. If we did not have them, then we would lose some of those benefits. For example, they help with things like making vitamins for us. They help with digestion. In fact, are pretty essential for some components of digestion. And so when that microbiome gets altered, then we begin to see the results of other types of infection. These don't usually cause infections by themselves. In fact, they help us with our immune response. They help keep other pathogens from setting up camp by sort of filling the space on the surface of our, our skin and in the lining of our digestive tract. 
Now they can sometimes cause a problem, but usually we can predict when that might occur. So these are three times when they might cause a problem, even though they are considered a normal flora. What if that normal flora is taken to the wrong site? An example here is the urinary tract. The urinary tract is supposed to be sterile. So what if you translocate some E. coli, which is normal flora in the intestine, and perhaps due to poor hygiene or some other condition, it ends up in the urinary tract. And in that case, it may cause a UTI, and it's actually one of the most common causes of UTI, particularly in women, but it's actually normal flora of the intestine that just gets moved to the UTI and sets up camp. Now, what about if antibiotics disrupt that normal balance of your normal flora? This is one of the potential side effects of using antibiotics to treat a legitimate infection, that those antibiotics don't know how to specifically isolate the organism you're trying to kill. They may kill normal flora at the same time. And what that does is then set up a situation where other organisms can fill that space where your normal flora used to be. So you could get something called a super infection. And this is where another organism takes over and sort of takes up that empty space that used to be there for your, your resident flora. This happens, for example, when somebody develops a yeast infection after being on antibiotics. So the yeast was kept in check because there wasn't enough space to grow as that was filled with bacteria. Now there's space for it to grow. Um, other examples are C. diff. So um, Clostridium difficile is a bacteria that is gram positive. And so if you're taking an antibiotic that kills all of the tons of gram negative organisms in your digestive tract, now this organism has space and it can sort of take over. It's also possible that normal flora that usually doesn't bother us can cause infection because your immune system isn't able to keep it in check. So people who are on steroid treatments, for example, long-term, which we learned can reduce your um, capacity to fight infection, or someone that has HIV or AIDS who is immunocompromised, they may be more at risk for things that don't normally bother us to cause a full-out in infection. Now, what are some common things? You've probably heard of a great deal of these, but may not have realized that they were actually caused by bacteria. Food poisoning, I mentioned botulism. Dysentery, which is sort of a generic term for things that cause diarrhea. Tuberculosis or TB. Ulcers, we now realize, are largely due to an infection with an organism that's actually able to withstand the high acidity of the stomach called H. pylori. Typhoid fever, which I mentioned with typhoid mary, caused by a salmonella organism. Lyme disease, particularly in the area of Connecticut, caused by a tick-borne bacteria. The plague, um, which, as I talked about in the first lecture, um, took out who knows how many of the world population. Cholera, gonorrhea, chlamydia, both STDs, UTIs I just mentioned, strep throat, sort of a, a biblical disease, leprosy. And then there are some that are less common because we have um, found vaccines that are effective against them. Pertussis and whooping cough, diphtheria and tetanus, which you do have to have a booster of about every 10 years to keep up that immunity. Let's shift to viruses. Now, these are obviously more in the news lately, mainly because of the pandemic. These are an obligate intracellular 
organism. And these cannot multiply on their own. In fact, they are non-living substances. They can only replicate once they infect your cell. They're kind of interesting as a group. Um, they have a basic structure that could have any of a number of different um, appearances. Some of them are helical. Some of them are sort of geometrical looking. Some of them are spheres. Some of them almost look like a, a spider or something. They're called bacteriophages. Now, these have a basic structure, much like when we talked about bacteria, but they are much more basic. They have some sort of protective outer protein coat, and this is protecting an inner core of genetic material. But what that core is is dependent on the type of virus we're talking about. It could have a genetic core that is DNA. It could have a genetic core that is RNA. It could have single-stranded or double-stranded genetic material, all different shapes and sizes. And some of, knowing some of this is what helps us not only to categorize them, but potentially how to approach not only treatment, but potential vaccine development. Some viruses have what's called an envelope. And this is sort of a phospholipid outer layer that can actually make it more susceptible. So if it has this outer envelope, it is more susceptible to things that can break down that, sorry about that, things that can break down that membrane, things like UV light, things like temperature changes and humidity and soap. So soap is capable of breaking down the phospholipids that are part of that envelope, which is why washing your hands regularly can reduce the transmission of enveloped viruses such as the coronavirus. There are some other things that some viruses have and some don't. For example, other surface proteins like a spike glycoprotein may be part of what allows them to enter into cells. And that's exactly what we see with coronavirus. This is actually a picture, a close up of the coronavirus, which is a spherical virus, much like influenza viruses and other coronaviruses, because there are some others I'll talk about in just a second that have a bunch of different surface proteins that affect not only its structure, but its function. So this spike protein is what we now know helps it to gain entry into the cells. So viral infection, how does that actually occur? Well, it has to attach to some sort of receptor. And once it does that, that receptor is what allows it to gain entry into the cell. And it depends on the type of receptor that it attaches to. So for example, if I were to rub influenza virus on my feet, I would not get the flu. And that's because there are different receptors on the skin cells as compared to the respiratory cells. And so the different surface proteins that might combine with some sort of cell receptor is what determines whether or not it is going to gain entry into that cell. But once it does, it goes through an uncoding process, which exposes that genetic material and then what I like to call hijacks the production factory of the cell. So your cell normally makes its own proteins and genetic material when it replicates. Well, instead of replicating the own cell's components for it to divide through mitosis, Instead, now that cell begins to make viral components. It starts to make the 
the genetic material that's needed for the virus, the capsid that's needed, that protein coating for the virus, and it begins to assemble new viral particles. And as those begin to get assembled, if it also is an enveloped virus, it may take part of the cell membrane with it as part of that envelope or outer membrane, and then it releases those new particles into the environment, which then quite likely go on to infect a cell nearby. Now, at some point, it's possible, just like our own cells, that there's some mistake in the replication process. Now, in our own cells, that can occasionally lead to cancer. We have mechanisms that hopefully take out any damaged cells with incorrect um, replication processes. But in the case of bacteria, it may not actually lead to anything other than an issue for us to fight it. Any mistakes or mutations in that replication means that the immune system, which thought it knew what the virus looked like, that virus is now going to look slightly different. And so the immune system may sort of be fooled a little bit in the cases where it has mutated. It also would create issues with vaccines. So you may have noticed that you have to have a flu vaccine every year, and that's because the flu virus mutates, and there are many, many different strains. And so your immune system may think it knows what it looks like when it sees influenza, but the next year that virus looks different, and it's not able to get rid of it because it's its surface components look different. The immune system hasn't seen those components before. So this is where development of vaccines, they're present. We have vaccines for some viruses, but not for others. And that's part of the reasoning for that. Now, it's possible when a virus enters the cell that it may not actually cause an infection right away. It could become latent or dormant and not do anything for a while. And perhaps replicate and cause infection later. And there are some viruses that are sort of known to do this. Viruses that are in the herpes family do this. They cause infection and they go dormant in a nerve cell. The same is true for the virus that causes chickenpox. It can cause the infection when you're a child and it goes dormant in one of your nerve cells. And then it comes back when you're an adult as shingles. So there are multiple viruses that we know do this, in addition to HIV, actually, that can go dormant. In fact, that's one of the, the treatment methodologies now is to keep it in a dormant phase for as long as possible. And let me put chicken pox here just for completeness sake. So let's talk a little bit about the pandemic because we're talking about viruses here. And I'm actually including a little bit more information about the coronavirus throughout this course because it does affect so many different systems. But I'm putting some of the basic information about this virus here in the infection lecture just to kind of give you some background on it now that we know about how viruses work. So um, the virus that causes COVID-19 is called SARS-CoV-2. And we tend to just refer to it as coronavirus, or you'll hear, you know, the media refer to it as coronavirus. But coronavirus is actually an entire family of viruses. And coronaviruses have caused many, many different things. For example, you've probably been infected with a different form of the coronavirus previously in your life because it is one of the viruses that can cause symptoms of the common cold. It is also the same family of viruses that caused the SARS outbreak in 2003 in Asia and a MERS outbreak, Middle Eastern Respiratory um, Virus, that was in Saudi Arabia in 2012. So 
this is not a new virus family and causing calling it coronavirus is a little bit misleading if you are at least aware of the fact that coronavirus is just a family of viruses. It is more um, specific to call it either SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19 because that is referring to, this is specifically the name of the virus and this is what it causes, coronavirus disease and the 19 referring to the year in which it was identified. You will also sometimes hear it referred to as novel coronavirus. And that is also helpful because what that tells us is it is a new coronavirus. Coronaviruses have been in existence for a very long time and have caused many other things. But this one is a new coronavirus. It is enveloped, which is one of the reasons why being outside helps because it's susceptible to UV light. Washing your hands a lot helps because it's susceptible to soap. It is containing non-segmented positive sense single-stranded RNA. That's how its genetic material is described. So you can see a picture of it here, and there are lots of pictures that have been in news stories about it. And we think that it arrives um, from bats. In fact, that was the origin of both the original SARS coronavirus and the MERS virus. What's really interesting about this one is that it binds to ACE2 receptors, and that ACE stands for angiotensin converting enzyme, which we'll learn a little bit more about when we get to the cardiovascular lecture. But what's important to realize about this is you have ACE2 receptors, not only in your alveoli in the lungs, but also in the endothelium of your blood vessels, in the enterocytes in your GI tract, the myocardium and the kidneys. So that in a way kind of explains what some of the other potential issues are. That's why this particular virus affects so many different body systems. The largest issue of course, is that it can lead to acute respiratory distress syndrome. So its most common issue is with breathing in the lungs. And that is why um, some of these people who have a more serious form of COVID-19, they will end up on a respirator. But it also affects the heart, the kidneys, the digestive tract. And as we talked about in the immune system lecture, part of the pathophysiology of this is that it creates massive out-of-control inflammation. And you get a cytokine storm. Cytokine storm syndrome ends up potentially leading to multi-organ failure and septic shock syndrome, which may or may not be due to the low lymphocytes and a secondary infection. But we'll talk a little bit more about some of these um, other issues as we get into the other bodily systems, because as I said, it does affect so many different body systems, which is why other underlying health conditions that increase your susceptibility often have something to do with those other systems that we know have ACE2 receptors and are therefore susceptible to this virus. So let's talk about some other common disease examples. Influenza, and that includes the various strains and forms of that, influenza A, influenza B, H1N1, all those different forms. The common cold, this is a category of of conditions caused by a ton of different viruses. The common cold can be caused by a form of the coronavirus, because as I said, that is a whole family of viruses. Or a common one that also causes the common cold is the coronavirus, I'm, I'm sorry, the rhinovirus. And that sort of makes sense if you think about rhino being nose, that some of the main symptoms have to do with congestion in the nasal cavity. 
RSV is respiratory syncytial virus. So that is a common respiratory virus in children that can be quite serious. Gastroenteritis or the stomach flu that's caused by rotavirus or norovirus. Warts caused by human papillomavirus, herpes viruses, cytomegalovirus. And then again, much like with bacteria, we've got some that are less common due to vaccination, thank goodness, like polio, measles, mumps, and rubella, chicken pox, and shingles. And others of note, um, and this one doesn't have a vaccine yet, but that is continuing to be explored in terms of a vaccine and other treatments is HIV AIDS. And this is an interesting um, picture here because it does show you a little bit about how many different types of viral families there are under which might be a number of things that you've heard of before. So there's the coronavirus one and it tells you a little bit about their different genetic material if you take a look there. So let's talk about another family of potentially disease-causing organisms, and that's fungi. Now, this one is interesting because it has many different possible forms. Some fungi are single-celled, like a yeast, which you'll see here. Some fungi are multicellular, like a mold, which is what you see here. And whatever type you get, or some of them can even be in different forms depending on the environment, might then describe what you're going to see in terms of symptoms. Now, most of what you might be concerned with in future practice would be superficial fungal infections, which are largely called tinea. And the word that comes after the word tinea is going to describe where it is. Tinea pedis, you know as athlete's foot. Tinea capitis, this happens on the head. Think of decapitated, that's when someone's head is removed. And that often goes with tinea corporis, or um, a fungal infection somewhere on the body, which is often called ringworm. So ringworm is usually described, used to describe either a fungal infection on the head or on the body. Tinea cruris is the technical term for jock itch. Tinea ungulum is when you have a fungal infection of the toenail. But in general, the term tinea is referring to a superficial fungal infection as opposed to a more systemic infection, which is a mycosis. Now, the growth and reproduction of the fungi is often going to depend on what its original form is. So budding often happens with yeasts, and that's what you see in this picture at the top. It sort of just produces a new little cell right off the side, as opposed to hyphae, which is how molds spread. And molds are actually going to produce these little finger-like or branch-like projections that will spread into the environment. And then spores allow for spread over a large area. And these might be things that could then, oh, sorry about that stupid thing. This might allow it to spread through the air. So for example, you see these little dots here. This is actually a picture of penicillium, which is the organism, the fungal origin of the antibiotic penicillin. And so this particular type of organism produces spores that are then able to um, spread through the air and then infect something else with that particular fungi. So. What are some common fungal infections? As I said, you're familiar with athlete's foot, probably heard of ringworm. 
And some yeast infections are often used to, um, with a term called candidiasis, and that's because candida albicans, albicans is one of the organisms specifically that causes that. Another term is thrush. Thrush is a term for when you have a yeast infection in the mouth, which can happen, for example, in people who have asthma and are taking an inhaled steroid. That can potentially cause an inability for your immune system to keep other organisms under control and you're sort of compromised, and then yeast is able to grow. So here's a picture of athlete's foot, and this is what ringworm looks like. Another type of infection is coxiotomycosis, which is an inhaled lung disease. It can happen in the southwestern part of the U.S. And then in immunocompromised individuals, there is a whole other set of possibilities like cryptococcus neoformans or histoplasmosis, which I'm not going to go into real detail on here because they're not quite as common as what you might come into contact with in future practice. Now, those are your three main things that you should be aware of future practice, but I'm going to briefly just mention a few things related to parasitic infections. Now, parasitic infections are not that common in the U.S. They do occur. However, worldwide, parasites cause most of your infections, things like worms, um, amoebal infections, malaria. So protozoans and helminths are terms that go along with parasitic infections. So these are things that are a little bit more complicated than bacteria and viruses. Protozoans, for example, are unicellular, but they're way more complicated than just bacteria. They actually do have a nucleus. They're more complex and they have more things in the cytoplasm. They may be modal. Um, they may have the ability to um, live inside some other host and then be transmitted through a vector. And you've heard of some of these before. Malaria transmitted by mosquitoes, and that's actually what you see inside of these red blood cells here, is the malarial parasite. So as I said, often they are vector transmitted. And even possibly through the environment. So. What you see here, this amoeba, might be um, the cause of infection of a type of dysentery. Um, and that might be because you drank water while you were hiking or backpacking or camping or something, unpurified water, that could be a source of infection of that. Toxoplasmosis is a parasite that can infect people from inhaling the spores from um, cat feces. So if you have a cat, um, and this is one of those that if you're ever pregnant, then um, doctors will tell you not to um, clean cat pans. Ask somebody else to do that because it can cause some birth defects. Trichomonas is actually an infection, um, an STD infection that causes vaginitis, and that's what you see here. This is a protozoan that has flagelli and it's modal. But these are ones, again, that are not as common in this country as in other countries. Helminths are kind of the same deal. They do occur, but they're a little less common in developed countries. These have a much more complex life cycle. Helminths is just another term for worms. And there are many, many different types here. And they usually have a life cycle that starts with an ovum or an egg then goes through a larval stage that may even be in some other type of host, and then finally an adult worm that then obviously produces eggs and then the cycle starts over again. So the transmission, as I said, may be in multiple different hosts, and they could be through the environment, 
Some of these may live in the soil and then you ingest them or they bore their way through your skin. Um, it's possible you could get them from eating contaminated food or some type of vector. For example, in dogs, a heartworm is transmitted through mosquitoes, for example. Now, some common helminth infections in humans, roundworms, pinworms are actually really common in kids, um, particularly in sandboxes and things, and you don't wash your hands, or you're digging in the dirt, hookworms, tapeworms, filaria are a type of worm that causes um, elephantiasis or a lymphatic blockage, and flatworms or flukes are common in certain parts of the world. This is, uh, for example, a liver fluke. But again, I'm not taking too much time with the protozoan and helminths because they are a little bit less common um, in this part of the world. But let's talk about how you would go through diagnosing the different types of infections. Quite often you're going to do some sort of blood test and you're probably gonna look for a white blood cell count that's elevated. Now, you probably notice some other things if someone has an active infection. They may have a fever, they may have malaise, remember that term, just a general crummy feeling. And there may be other cardinal signs of inflammation, redness, swelling, um, some, some other, it obviously depends on the type of infection we're talking about. So if it's an internal infection, you might not see the redness and swelling, but it would be part of what the person is experiencing in terms of their malaise and just general um, down feeling. Now, if you are looking for viruses, you might do an antigen or an antibody titer. And we're seeing this more as well as we talk about the coronavirus pandemic. Other inflammatory markers can be helpful, such as C-reactive protein, which is a marker of inflammation, or ESR, which is the erythrocyte sedimentation rate. If it's bacteria, we can take a sample and do some staining. We can try to grow it on a Petri dish and also do some staining. And gram staining, as I said, is really helpful because if we can identify that it's gram positive or gram negative along with its shape, that is going to narrow down our diagnostics a little bit. Fungi can also be identified through culture and staining. They're a little bit more difficult to grow and they require a different process, but still it can be helpful to actually look at it under the microscope. Now, in the case of trying to decide how to treat something, particularly with bacteria, we may wanna do what's called a culture insensitivity or a Kirby-Bauer test. And this is really helpful because there are so many different types of bacteria and we know there's the possibility of resistant organisms. What they do is they, once they isolate that initial bacteria after doing a culture, then they will spread some of the isolated bacteria onto its own Petri dish and then drop little disks that contain different types of antibiotic drugs and then let it grow. And what that tells us is I would not wanna give this antibiotic or this one, or this one, or this one, because you can see the bacteria are able to grow right up to the very edge of that disc. Whereas with this one, the antibiotic was able to kill the bacteria way out to here, and this one as well. So you may find, for example, you, perhaps you were diagnosed with a UTI and the doctor starts you on a drug, but calls you back two days later and says, hey, I'm gonna have to change your antibiotic because that drug or that organism is resistant to the drug that I prescribed. And you may notice that you weren't feeling that much better after those first couple days. And that's because the drug really wasn't working for that particular bacteria. So culture and sensitivity can really be helpful. And this, this idea of finding how much 
um, that drug is able to kill the bacteria is minimal inhibitory concentration. So you can tell based on the amount of antibiotic that is in each of these discs, how much it is able to inhibit the growth around it. Now, in some cases, it's difficult to get a sample or it is a, it's a deep infection. And so perhaps imaging might be helpful. And this is one of the ways that we diagnose pneumonia, for example. We look for the cloudiness in the lungs themselves with an x-ray. Now, what about infection and exercise? This is kind of a big deal given your future profession, right? Now, it's helpful to realize that it depends on the type of infection we're talking about. So aerobic performance and strength is decreased during active infection because your body's trying to fight things off and muscle catabolism may actually occur. So in that case, you may have a different effect on your strength versus your aerobic capacity. So strength may be impeded for a few weeks, whereas aerobic capacity, it could take up to three months. And this also actually depends on how long that person was sort of um, inactive or immobile due to the infection recovery. Now, what you don't want to do, though, is to have an athlete or client who says, I'm going to push through. I know I'm sick, but I'm going to keep exercising and training because I really don't want to lose the progress that I've made. Well, unfortunately, it's possible that exercise can have an effect on the active infection. Now, it depends. You obviously want to talk to a physician or a trainer about whether to continue with your training, depending on what the type of infection is and what your overall symptoms are, how serious it is. Some bacterial infections really won't be affected if you continue to exercise. However, viral and parasitic infections could get worse if you continue. And so particularly if you have a fever, you definitely do not want to continue exercising because you could really put yourself into a bad situation because elevating your your body temperature even higher could start causing other things to go wrong in your immune system and in your GI tract and you could end up going into sort of a shock type situation generated by this elevated temperature combined with a further elevation from exercise. So just kind of be aware of some of these things and go on the advice of a trainer or a sports physician as to what to do in terms of continuing to train or how long to go um, with your recovery phase. Let's now talk then about what to do when you have an infection. What kinds of things might a physician or nurse practitioner or physician's assistant look to for treating different types of infection? Now, the course of infection, this is also some things that have come up in the you know popular media lately because we've all been wondering about the pandemic. So there's this sort of time period with the course of infection that starts with an exposure of some kind and the routes of transmission that i talked about before is going to stipulate kind of maybe how much you're exposed to and how long it might take for you to begin to show symptoms during that time from exposure until you first have symptoms that's called the incubation period and that can be helpful to know because if we know the incubation incubation period for example is between four days and 14 days then we know that if you are outside of that range you are not likely to and you're not experiencing symptoms then you're not likely to have acquired that condition the prodromal period is when you just start to experience some symptoms here's where the number of organisms is just rising enough that you're beginning to feel bad you might start to get a fever you just feel crummy you're feeling fatigue once that is high enough in your system that's when you begin to have the highest level of symptoms. That's the acute phase. So this is where your fever is the worst, you're feeling the worst. It also may be when you're most transmissible. So if you 
look here, you've got a really high number of organisms compared to in the very early phases, right? Now, at the same time that the organism is rising in concentration, you are also fighting it off. Your body is doing what it does best and the immune system is trying to fight it. So at some point, ideally, either because your immune system is able to take care of it or because you begin to get antibiotic treatment, you're going to see the level of those organisms drop back down. And here, this is the convalescence. Your symptoms fade and ideally you go on to a full recovery. Some people, however, may have chronic infection. That might be what happens, for example, with hepatitis. Now, in some cases, your body isn't able to handle it. Either it's a resistant organism and the drugs aren't working, or you are immunocompromised and your immune system just can't keep up. In those cases, it may become overwhelming and you may end up with septicemia. Now, the other things that we have to keep in mind with the course of infection is that we have to be really careful in terms of treatment, depending on what it is we're dealing with, that some infections will just go away on their own. It's called self-limiting. And there are many infections that this happens. The common cold just goes away on its own given time. Many ear infections and sinus infections will go away on their own given time. Unfortunately, we've gotten into or had gotten into this habit of treating everything. And some things just don't require treatment. Now, in some cases, you might want to give an antibiotic ahead of time. And that might be if someone is immunocompromised and they're having sort of some sort of procedure coming up, a dental procedure or a surgery, and we want to prevent infection from forming. But most of the time, you might just want to see if your body can take care of it. Um, because overusing antibiotics is how you generate antibiotic resistance. Now, if someone's immunocompromised because they're taking steroids regularly or they have HIV or perhaps poor sleep, stress, or nutrition have contributed to their immunocompromised status, they may um, need to have medication even in the case of somebody else not needing it. But ideally what we're trying to avoid is antibiotic resistance because that has become more and more common. Antibiotic resistance is when that organism no longer responds to treatment with that drug. And what happens here is antibiotic resistance can develop if you give an antibiotic and it kills off most of the organisms but leaves a few behind, then those take over. Those ones may have been more resistant or stronger and then they begin to replicate and could even pass their ability to be resistant to other nearby organisms. And this is how we get a spread of antibiotic resistant. And I'll talk in a little bit, some of the reasons that this has occurred is because people either didn't complete their regimen of drugs or we've overused antibiotics in cases where they really weren't necessary. For example, the term antibiotics often refers to antibacterials and antibacterials are not going to be effective for viral infections. For example, the common cold, is not going to be affected by antibiotics or antibacterials in any way. And so they really should not be given in those cases. Now, antibacterials, and I have to be very specific here, as I said, we tend to use the term antibiotics, but what we are referring to there is antibacterials. So I will try to be more specific when I'm talking about that. Antibacterials are often classified in terms of maybe how they look, like their structure. For example, we'll talk about drugs that have a beta-lactam ring. We'll talk about some that have a sulfa um, molecule. We can talk about whether they kill 
bacteria or whether they slow the growth. And that would be bactericidal versus bacteriostatic. We can talk about whether they kill both gram-positive and gram-negative, or whether it's gram-positive or gram-negative, not both. Okay, those are two very different situations. We may talk about whether something is a first generation or a second generation drug, or some of the cases are even fourth or fifth generation. The first generation is the first one that was made or used. The second generation and further generations are usually new and improved versions, and maybe they're more um, susceptible. Or they, they work on organisms that are more either gram positive and gram negatives, or they work on organisms that were previously resistant. So those can all be positive things and oftentimes a further generation drug is used unless there is a um, allergic reaction or side effect that you're trying to avoid. Now, how do they work? Well, there are multiple modes of action and the way that they work is often what we're going to see can either cause side effects or be used in maybe even other non-infection things like neoplasm. The cell wall, remember, is the only unique thing that bacteria have that we don't have. And it's essential to bacterial life. So usually if you have a drug that is attacking the cell wall, it is usually bactericidal. Because that is essential. The cell membrane, if it's attacking that, that may damage our own cells, as might attacking nucleic acids or protein synthesis or metabolism through enzymes. So this might be something that you are using to kill the bacteria, but you will have side effects because our normal flora use those same things, or um, there are other cells in your body that could be affected by that as well. So here's kind of a chart of some different um, drugs that use different things. For example, beta-lactams like penicillins, they attack the cell wall. Um, we will talk a little bit about macrolides and lincosamides. Those affect protein synthesis, as does tetracycline. Um, we'll talk a little bit about some other drugs that can be used sometimes for their side effects, as in the case of some that are used for neoplasm when we talk about that particular lecture. But in general, there's some things regardless of the drug we're using and why we really have to be careful of. So even if you're feeling better, you should always finish the entire course of that antibacterial because not doing so could increase the chance that you are going to harbor resistant organisms. Unless a physician tells you to stop taking that drug, for example, because it has been shown to not be effective for that organism and they're switching you to something else, you always want to finish that entire course. And then follow any other instructions. We know that some drugs may um, be required to take with food or drink or not. For example, some bind with calcium and so you want to avoid taking them with dairy always taking them at the same time of day. Remember that term therapeutic range? If you don't consistently take them at the appropriate time and number of times per day, then you might not have enough of it in your system to kill the organism, which means again, you could encourage resistant organisms to grow. And keeping them at recommended conditions. Does it need to be refrigerated? Is it room temperature? Do you need to shake well because it's a suspension, etc.? Now, there are some common adverse drug responses, and these should make a lot of sense to you. As I said, some of them have to do with your normal flora. Because you have normal flora in the gut, many of the side effects have to do with the intestines, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, abdominal pain. You can have some 
um, issues with the oral mucosa, which may even be partly because of um, a super infection with thrush or yeast. There's also the issue of an allergy, and you should always be aware of this and even make sure to mention the type of drug you took because some of these drugs, as you'll see, are related to each other. If you're allergic to one, there might be a whole other family you can't take because they're related. So basic allergies could run anywhere from a rash to something more serious like a um, hypersensitivity response that leads to a anaphylaxis or even something called Stevens. Johnson syndrome, which is rare, but is an allergy in which you can have flu-like symptoms and then you get skin and mucosal lesions and it, you can recover from it, but it can become serious if it's not addressed quickly. That risk of super infection is one of the biggest adverse drug responses that um, we're trying to avoid. That's the idea where you get some imbalance of normal flora and something else takes over, right? So one of the common ones is a yeast infection, candidiasis, because the bacteria has been killed, but the yeast aren't infected by that particular antibacterial. Or it's a different type of bacterial that get, bacteria that get, gets out of control. Pseudomembranous colitis um, can be caused by Clostridium difficile. That's a gram-positive organism, so if you're being treated for a gram-negative infection with that type of drug, this organism can take over. So those are all distinct possibilities to be aware of. Now, general precautions, obviously, if you're allergic to something or something that is related, you want to avoid um, taking a related drug. For example, penicillins are related to cephalosporins, so you might not be able to take either one if you're allergic to one of those. Kidney or liver disease, and this should make sense to you too because metabolism and excretion are a big part of how you get rid of and metabolize drugs. Pregnancy and lactation, we learned before that the... Um, the Blood-brain barrier is protective, but the placental barrier is not. And so there may be things that can pass to the fetus, and so you should consult with your doctor with any particular drugs. Contraceptive use. Um, many antibiotics decrease the effectiveness of those drugs, so you have to be aware of that. And other medications. There could be interactions with other things that you're taking, so you have to make sure that physician, the physician or prescribing health professional is aware of other things you're taking, which could include... Anything related to over-the-counter drugs that might not be in your record or even herbals that aren't in your record. So let's get started on some of these. Now I'm going to highlight the most important components because this is a lot of information, but I'm going to try to point out what is unique about each of these drug categories. Sulfonamides are really common. In fact, they are the most common drug used worldwide for UTIs really commonly used for UTIs. And that's because they're broad spectrum. Um, and they're one of the first and most common and they're really cheap. So they're easy to get, easy to use. They can be used in third world countries and you know, they're, they're just um, ubiquitous in terms of their use. Now, one of the issues is though, that you can have adverse drug responses related to hematologic or blood cell changes. Um, and you have to increase fluids with these because they produce crystals in the urine. And if you don't increase fluids, you could have some urinary symptoms. You may have heard of this, sulfadiazole, um, or I'm sorry, sulfadiazine, Bactrim or Septra are some of the trade names for this. And this one is bacteriostatic. The idea behind bacteriostatic, you may be thinking, well, why wouldn't I want to only take things that kill the organism? Well, as I said, many 
infections are self-limiting. And so if you can just slow the growth of the organism, your immune system can quite often take over and get rid of it. So penicillins kind of became a, a lifesaver, particularly in World War II once those were developed. These have a beta-lactam ring structure. And they are bactericidal mainly because they inhibit the cell wall. They are used mostly for gram-positive organisms, although there are some later generations of penicillins that have some effectiveness against other um, organisms. But these were developed originally by, well, not developed, but discovered really by Alexander Fleming, who noticed that there was a fungus growing on some of his Petri dishes where he was trying to grow bacteria. So this is one of those that was originally developed from a fungus, but later ones have been manufactured and then um, likely have more broad spectrum effects. The original was mostly for gram positives. And you do have some other interactions or issues when the organism that you're treating learns to break apart the beta-lactam ring that is part of this, or, this um, drug structure. So some bacteria will make what's called a beta-lactamase enzyme or a penicillinase enzyme, and that allows them to break apart this drug, and that is how they become resistant. Now, you probably have heard of some of these, ampicillin, amoxicillin, augmentin is a trade name, and these are closely related to cephalosporins because cephalosporins are also beta-lactam drugs. The difference here is that they are resistant to that enzyme that normally breaks apart the beta-lactam ring structure in your other penicillins. So these also are bactericidal by breaking apart the cell wall. And Similar to other penicillins, the first generation mainly treated gram-positive infections, but some of your later generations were more broad-spectrum, treating lots of things. And you'll recognize some of the drugs in here too. They're used quite often to treat things like tonsillitis, pharyngitis, ear infections, upper respiratory tract infections, UTIs, lots of uses for drugs in this category. And what's also interesting about this one is Normally, you have a cross sensitivity. For example, if you're allergic to penicillins, you may not be able to take cephalosporins. However, there is some really interesting um, um, members of this family that don't have that issue. For example, if someone is allergic to amoxicillin, they may be able to take cefnadir, for example, because people who um, are allergic to some penicillins seem to be able to tolerate this without having an allergic reaction. So while there usually is a cross sensitivity between penicillins and cephalosporins, there are some exceptions and they're usually in your later generation cephalosporins. What about tetracyclines? These are really interesting ones because they are broad spectrum and they have an issue with binding to minerals. So that's what makes these ones a little bit unique. They bind to calcium. So in fact, they're not recommended to be given to kids who are still developing their teeth, for example, because you can see staining in the teeth in individuals who take this. This is one that can't be taken with dairy because of that binding with calcium. And people who take it have to be careful of sun exposure because it can cause a sort of increased um, sunburn as a result of this. Doxycycline or vibromycin, monocycline or arrestin are some common examples of tetracyclines. Macrolides and lincomycins are ones that are often used for some very specific types of infections. So here it's usually macrolides used in gram-positive um, infections and you probably will recognize some of these. Azithromycin or 
Zithromax or Z-Pak is a really common antibiotic that's used, for example, with um, skin infections, upper respiratory tract infections, maybe even strep infections. And this depends on whether it's, um, its concentration, whether it's bacteriostatic or bacteriocidal. So ZPAC, if you've ever taken that, it has a loading dose. So you take two pills right away the first day in order to get that concentration way up into the therapeutic range right away so that you're getting more of a bacteriocidal effect. Your lincomycins or lincosamides, again, can be either depending on their concentration, and these are also used primarily for gram-positive cocci. However, they are usually reserved for more serious infections where previous drug categories won't work. And that's because they have a more um, possibil greater possibility for toxicity. Your fluoroquinolones, the biggest thing I want you to know about this one is that there is a musculoskeletal side effect that you should be aware of. These are bactericidal and they're broad spectrum, which means they're used quite a bit for respiratory infections, skin infections, UTIs, but you can get tendonitis. So if you have a athlete patient client who's having symptoms of tendonitis, who is on this drug, you may want to be really careful and ask them to speak to their physician or pharmacist about this because they could end up with rupture of a tendon or cartilage lesions, particularly in weight-bearing joints, as a result of this drug. And some that you may recognize in this category are ciprofloxacin or cipro or levofloxacin or levoquin. So this is a really big one in terms of musculoskeletal things to be aware of. Aminoglycosides. The biggest thing I want you to know about this one, is this the only one we've talked about so far? That's primarily used for gram-negative infections. And most of your gram-negative infections are primarily gastrointestinal infections. And this one, unfortunately, has many issues in terms of toxicity. It has kidney toxicity, hearing or ear toxicity, and neurotoxicity. But because it's poorly absorbed, it's really good for treating things in the gastrointestinal tract, which is where a lot of your gram-negative organisms are. So this can be quite helpful. And it's actually interesting, I don't know why I have a gram-positive picture of bacteria here, but that's the biggest thing with aminoglycosides to be aware of, is mainly for gram-negative, but they can be highly toxic. Now, these miscellaneous bacteria, I put them here for completeness sake, but quite honestly, all of these previous ones that I've gone through are enough. It's a lot of information already. I put them here because you may have heard of some of these before. Chloramphenicol, you may have heard of flagell, meropenem, you may have heard of vancomycin. A lot of these are used for very specific things like resistant organisms and nosocomial infections, really serious infections. Um, even for some parasitic infections. So I'm not going to really test over any of these, but the information is here if you need it. Now, remember how I said that antibiotics usually refers to antibacterials and that those will not work on viral infections? Well, there's a whole other category of drugs for antivirals. And these don't have a whole lot of use because quite honestly, viral infections aren't well treated by drugs. In fact, those viral infections that we do treat with antivirals, they don't usually get rid of the virus. All they do is slow the progression and reduce the symptoms and give your body a chance to get rid of it. So we have really limited use. In fact, there's only a few viruses that it's really effective against. We have some that help with herpes simplex. We have some that lengthen the time of latency for 
for HIV. We have some that help with cytomegalovirus and influenza. Again, doesn't get rid of it, but shortens your time period of infection. Respiratory syncytial virus and hepatitis. Now again, it's mainly just to acute or shorten the acute phase, or in the case of HIV, to delay the acute phase, but it doesn't prevent your transmission of it to others, so you have to be careful of that as well. What they tend to do is inhibit the DNA or RNA replication of the virus, and some of these you've probably heard of. In particular, ones making the news lately are remdesivir, which had some success in treating hepatitis and Ebola, and more recently has been experimented with in terms of treating COVID-19 patients. Acyclovir or valacyclovir, valacyclovir, known by its trade name Valtrex, that is a prodrug for acyclovir used to treat herpes simplex. And then if you are diagnosed with influenza, as long as you were in the very early stages of that infection, you could take drugs like Tamiflu or Relenza, which are meant to, again, shorten that acute phase and keep your symptoms lower so that you don't have long-term symptoms and hopefully don't progress to pneumonia with influenza. Now, I'm not really going to test on antiretrovirals. These are very specific for HIV infection. Um, but again, I provide this information to you here just for completeness sake. The idea with treating HIV infection is that you're somehow attacking the replication at many different places to try to keep it in a latent phase. So there's often what we would call a cocktail of drugs that are given for people who have HIV in order to try to keep that replication slowed and under control to delay the progression to AIDS. Antifungals. This is a big one because superficial fungal infections are actually quite common, particularly in sports and athletics, and their treatment is over-the-counter, so knowing a little bit about these can be quite helpful. So superficial skin infections um, and vaginal yeast infections might use some things like mycostatin or nystatin or monostat, meconazole. Athlete's foot has many different types of treatments that may be a spray or a cream. And so knowing a little bit about these might really help you if you, you know, you notice an athlete who's having some symptoms of, a, of athlete's foot. This could be a pretty straightforward treatment. So knowing a little bit about that can be helpful. Whereas your systemic infections, these all, almost all are more serious and strong drugs. So your amphotericin B for systemic mycosal um, inspection infections given parenterally, in other words, IV. Um, it does have some toxicity issues, so is usually only used in really serious conditions. Again, these have a lot of toxicity issues, and so they're usually reserved for times when they're really necessary for more systemic deep mycoses. Antiprotozoals, again, I'm not going to go into too much on this because they're less common here in the U.S., but some of them you may recognize. For example, ivermectin is used um, for quite a few different types of protozoal infections, and it's even the drug that you um, may be giving to your dogs or cats, for example, to help with um, infections, um, worm infections with them. Antimalarials, these probably sound familiar because some of these, like chloroquine, um, are being investigated for treatment for COVID-19, hydrochloroquine, hydroquinolone, things like that. And then some of your other protozoal treatments like flagell you may hear of that are occasionally used when those come up. So if you have any questions on this, I know it's a lot of material, but please let me know. Hopefully this at least gives you some context for different types of infections because they are so common. Um, but if you have any issues or questions at all with this material, just let me know.